<laughs> well, it's a real treat um, to be here among you. Thank you again uh, for, um, for the invitation to be here. Uh, yes, um, one of the things that I am, aside from being an Ottawa girl, is uh, a pilgrim. Um, I'm a pilgrim who walked. Um, I, worked, I walked my first Camino de Santiago back in 2001, the Camino Frances, back before it was the phenomenon that it is today. I did that in June, July of 2001. And then a few months later in November, um, I began another pilgrimage, this time walking from Rome to Jerusalem. And my plan was to walk it alone, but um, I guess the fates had other designs and uh, they brought to me a pilgrim from Spain named Alberto. Um, and Alberto would join me and he would walk all the way into Jerusalem with me. And we are metaphorically walking together still because we are married and we have um, a daughter and uh, you know, we lived in Spain and now we've come back to live in my hometown, which is Ottawa. Mm. Yeah, so that's kind of how the story begins. Um, but this pilgrimage to uh, Jerusalem, um, it was a pilgrimage that took us 13 months to walk. Uh, it was 5,000 5, kilometers in length, and it led us through 13 different countries. And so if you uh, pull up the map, I can just begin to show you the route and explain very briefly what the route was about and where we started and, uh, and where we went. So this is where we began, the Rome here in Italy. Um, and we decided to head north. By the way, this map, this is the first map that I bought. And it was the first map that we looked at and said, okay, generally, where do we want to go? And this is the route that we more or less mapped out. And so we began walking in Rome and we headed north towards um, Venice. And from there, we cut along the eastern Adriatic coastline. So what was the former Yugoslavia, essentially Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia-Herzegovina. We went into Serbia, Montenegro, Albania. Um, um, then we started to cut east towards Macedonia, Greece. And we continued along the Mediterranean coastline following mm -hmm. that. Um, and so that brought us into Turkey. Um, and we made a decision when we arrived in Turkey that we would not go across Turkey, which would be shorter. But shorter also meant longer distances, very long distances without water and without the possibility to stop. And because we were arriving in the summertime, it, the heat was definitely a factor. And so we decided instead that we would stick to the coastline, which although would take us a lot longer, it really added to our journey. Um, you don't realize how, how many crevices and twists and turns, it's not a straight line um, that are along the coastline. And so um, it took us three months just to get to Antalya, which is this point here. Um, at that point, our three month visas expired. And so we had to make a decision. The only way that we could get new visas was to leave the country and come back again. That's what we were told. And so we left and went to Cyprus, which was the nearest country, took a boat back and then continued walking um, towards Syria. And this little kind of blip out towards Shanli Urfa was like a little side pilgrimage from our pilgrimage, which we took by bus. 
um, because we had heard that Shanli Urfa in Turkey um, was the land, the ancient land of Ur, which is where Abraham came from. And many of the prophets, it's actually called the land of prophets. And it was just at a point in our pilgrimage, it, we had been walking now for almost a year. We felt like everything in us needed to take a break and kind of have our, our faith renewed in everything that we were doing. And we wanted to walk in that land of faith. And so we took a bus, spent a couple of days there and then came back and then continued walking. We walked south through Syria. This was at a time when you could do it. We walked south through Syria. We entered Lebanon. We headed towards the border with Israel. And this border, the Israeli-Lebanese border, was the only border that we could not physically cross on foot because it was closed with landmines, um, barbed wire. Um, so there was no way for us to physically cross. The only thing that was possible was for us to either, they, we were told at the border, well, you could walk east over the Lebanese mountains, enter into Jordan, walk all around Jordan, and then enter from that side, from Jordan. But it's like, it's right there. <laughs> it's like about, a, I don't know, 150 kilometers away. And they were, what they were suggesting was going to add at least a month of walking. And we just said, no, we're tired. We're tired. We just, we want to cross. And they said, well, the only way then was to fly to Cyprus again. And then we did. We flew from Beirut to Cyprus, Cyprus to Tel Aviv. We took a train to Haifa, which was the northernmost point that we could get to. And then we continued walking from Haifa to Jerusalem. So that was the physical walk. That was the journey that took us 5,000 kilometers, um, a journey that um, really in so many ways changed my life and changed the way that I look at the world. And uh, I'm going to just switch out for a moment to see my notes. I'm not sure how I can do that. So let me see. What, there they are. There are my notes. So can you see me okay? Are you seeing my notes? Are you seeing me still? We see you. Okay, perfect. Um, excellent. And so now what I'm going to, to ask is that the, after this, the, the slides are going to run on their own. I will mention that the pictures that you're going to see were taken with my little Kodak 35 millimeter camera. This was long before the time of digital photos where you can take a million pictures and then decide on the ones that you want to keep. I had to, we had to buy film in uh, wherever we were and we never knew if we could find that film. And so every photo that we took was incredibly precious. And so uh, we would never knew if they were going to turn out until we actually developed them. So enjoy these pictures as they go along and I'll just keep telling the story of, of this walk. So and, Tony, will we hold the questions until the end? Well, you know, um, sure. But if there's something that you absolutely you, you feel like asking now, I'd be more than happy to answer it. Okay. Okay. All righty. Um, well, one of the first questions we get asked is, why did you go from Rome to Jerusalem? Um, well, there's a story around that. When I was on the Camino, because I had walked the Camino first, uh, this was, as I mentioned, in June, July of 2001. When I was on the Camino, I heard that there are three pilgrimages that any individuals who any individual who is on this path of awakening and personal transformation needs to walk. And the three pilgrimages are the Camino, and that pilgrimage is called the Way of the Sword. And it's the place 
where you battle your fears and it's the place where you face kind of the darkest demons within you and you find your courage to continue walking. So that was the Camino, the way of the sword. The other pilgrimage that the individual who's on this path of awakening is invited to walk is a path called the way of the heart. And that path leads from Canterbury Cathedral in London, England, down to Rome. And on this path, this is where you learn the meaning of love, the meaning of love and all of its many dimensions, not just, you know, relationships and human love. And finally, there is another path to walk. And that path leads to Jerusalem. And that path is called the way of the soul. And on this journey, you connect with the divine. You connect with your soul's highest purpose. And you learn how to bring that to the world. Now, when I heard that, when I heard that there is a way of the soul that leads to Jerusalem, as soon as I heard that, my heart just jumped. I knew this was the path that I needed to walk. It really felt like a calling to do that. Um, I had just quit my corporate job. Um, my husband of the time had left for someone else and everything that I had done to play by society's rules had essentially left me unfulfilled and alone. Um, and I was ready. I was ready to explore um, a new way of being. And I think that desire that to understand my life, to understand my place in the universal order of things led me into spiritual territory. And all of the books of the time, you know, from Neil Donald Walsh and Conversations with God to James Redfield and the Celestine Prophecy, Deepak Chopra and so on. And they all were introducing me to a new way of thinking, to a new way of seeing myself and of seeing the world. And it was radical for me at the time. It was radical because it was speaking about the need to surrender and to let go of the need to control and to trusting, you know, not only the path, but to trusting all the invisible forces that are guiding you on this path through intuition, through synchronicities, through omens, through signs. I mean, I was a project manager. I was a marketing manager. I planned everything. Nothing happened without a plan. You don't just, you know, surrender and have faith that everything was going to work out. That's just not done in the worldview that I was living in. Um, but then, you know, I figured, well, my way of thinking and being had gotten me to where I was. So maybe a new way of approaching life would bring me the peace and the meaning that I was really seeking at that time. And the walk ended up being a walk for peace because 9-11 happened that year. So 9-11 happened in September. I finished my Camino in July. 9-11, I, I received this inspiration to do this pilgrimage. I had my doubts, but then 9-11 happened and it felt like this was the calling to say, yes, you need to just go and walk this pilgrimage. And this pilgrimage would be my way of contributing to the voices of peace at the time. Um, I was certainly no poster child for peace. Um, I had many things I needed to work out within myself. But I did believe, as I still do now, that to create peace in the world, or anything in the world, I had to first remove the barriers to peace within me. It had to begin within me, as Gandhi has so appropriately said. And so this was really what was driving this pilgrimage for peace. But this pilgrimage 
was nothing like the Camino. For those who know the Camino and know what it's about, um, there is no marked path that leads you from Rome to Jerusalem. I mean, there are no yellow arrows. There are no pilgrim accommodations or infrastructure of any kind to support the pilgrim. Alberto and I had to make up our own path. We essentially bought maps. As soon as we arrived into the country we were walking through, we would buy the best map that we could, and we would pick a route that would take us off of the busy highways and onto secondary roads, because this was all road walking. We were just walking on the side of the road that's facing traffic so we could see what was coming at us. And we were walking in single file, me in front because I'm shorter and Alberto behind me. So I could see at least see the road ahead. Um, we also had nothing booked in advance. We had no hotels, no reservations of any kind because we really didn't know where we were going to end up every night. We didn't have sponsors. We didn't have anybody giving us money to do this. I had savings enough to stay in hostels with some pensions, but Alberto didn't. Um, when we met, he told me he had some savings, but we were walking in Italy and Italy is not cheap. Italy was very expensive. And so he suggested that we do what medieval pilgrims used to do, which is arrive in town and call on the first spiritual anything you found, whether it was a church, a monastery, a convent, and explain that we are pilgrims who are just needing shelter for the night. We don't need money, we don't need food, we just need shelter from the elements. And yes, we carry tents, but we didn't realize, I didn't realize that walking in Italy, when you further north we go in the winter, it's cold, there's snow, <laughs> the ground is frozen. We didn't count on that. And so even though we had tents with us, oftentimes the ground was frozen and the pegs couldn't fit through the ground. And so that really wasn't an option. We had to find a place to sleep. And you know, most times um, these churches and monasteries, they opened up a room essentially that they had in, in their church hall. And we slept in our sleeping bags, we slept on the floor, we slept on tables, on sofas, you know, whatever was available. Um, trying to remember always the axiom that says, the tourist demands while the pilgrim gives thanks. Walking in that attitude of gratitude was something that would be tested <laughs> for me over and over again. Um, we learned as we walked that many monasteries had beds and um, they had hot showers. And that was amazing for a pilgrim. So you can bet that we were looking for monasteries as often as we could so that we could have a hot shower and a bed to sleep in. And so many people, so many people invited us um, to sleep in their homes. Um, and they did that often because, for many reasons, but one of the main reasons is that we were carrying signs on our backpacks, as I'm sure that you'll, you know, you'll see um, from the pictures. We were carrying signs in the language of every country that we were walking in, saying that we are walking to Jerusalem for peace. So we were essentially billboards. And this invited people, I think, to engage with us and to begin a conversation around what it means to be peace in the world. And this is how we walked. This is essentially how we walked uh, for six months until we arrived in Greece. Um, our relationship until then, Alberto and I, had been platonic. We were only friends. We were pilgrim friends. 
no one would believe that we were only friends. Um, in fact, one of the first words we learned how to say in every language was we are friends. Um, and but in Greece, after six months, you know, imagine, you know, you're with the same person day in, day out, experiencing, going through very intense experiences every single day. Nobody else to talk to really except that person. And so over time, our relationship evolved. And when it became romantic, well, then we wanted to look for private accommodations. And that's what we started to do um, in Greece. So very briefly, and those are kind of, those are the outer elements of this pilgrimage. This is all the physical stuff that make up pilgrimage. But here with the Labyrinth Guild, you know that being on pilgrimage is very much like walking the labyrinth. You are walking outwardly to a destination that yeah, is outer, but you're really, your true destination is inner. And so even though our feet were leading us physically to Jerusalem, there definitely were deeper revelations that were taking place with every step and with every encounter um, that Alberto and I were having along the way. And one of the first things that I realized was just how hard it is to surrender and to trust that everything is going to be okay and that your every need is going to be met. You know, it's all beautiful in theory and all of these books and all of these teachers tell you that, yeah, this is what it's going to be like when you surrender. And it's great in theory until you have to actually do that every single day. It becomes, until, you know, until it becomes the way that you walk every day, essentially walking on faith without any plans and surrendering and trusting that everything is going to be okay. And to do that, I realized very quickly that I really had to walk through my fears. There is no way around that. I had to face those fears. I had to face my many expectations and my many beliefs, which were often less than loving and quite often very judgmental. And until I could come to the place of accepting that I was the source of all that I was experiencing. I wasn't the victim of what was happening, but the source of it. I was walking in a lot of resistance. I was you know, feeling defensive. I was closed off. I was arguing a lot with Alberto about you know, how things should be. And I wasn't really allowing any of the transformation and the healing to take place. I would, you know, go, I would say that my beliefs the expectations that I had, all the fears that I, that I carried with me were weights that were heavier than anything that I was carrying in my backpack. But I couldn't lay them down, not in the beginning. Um, and I couldn't, I, I just wasn't capable in the beginning of just surrendering them, of giving them to, to spirit, to God, to creator, to be healed so that I could have the peace that I wanted. It was a process and it took time. It took time and it took um, commitment and it was the willingness to try again, no matter how badly I failed at it. And this work, this inner work of looking at my fears and doing this work, it started before on the before the Camino, it continued on the Camino, but it definitely intensified um, when Alberto and I were walking to Jerusalem. And I'll give you a very, a very simple example of you know how all of this was showing up for me. You know, 
my expectations especially were very plain to see when we started calling on churches and spiritual centers. I mean, I didn't want to do that in the first place. But Alberto simply didn't have the funds to be able to sleep in hostels every night. Um, and he even said to me, listen, you go find yourself a hostel, you go sleep wherever you want, and I'll find something on my own. Don't worry about me. But then, you know, how was I, in all good conscience, going to let him do that? I mean, we were walking the same kilometers. We were both putting in the same effort. How was I going to sleep in a nice warm room somewhere, not even knowing where he was going to end up? Plus, in many of the towns and the villages that we stopped, there were no hostels, there were no private accommodations. And so we had to be open to finding other possibilities. So once I kind of came around to this idea, okay, we're going to be calling on the churches, we're going to try and do this your way like medieval pilgrims used to do, I of course expected immediate help. <laughs> I mean, that's their job, isn't it? To help people in need. Um, we're people in need. We're calling, you know, on, on the door asking for help. And so, you know, I had this expectation walking in and, you know, when we knocked on the door, along with the expectation came the fears. So are they going to answer the door? Are they going to answer this call? How are they going to react? Where are we going to sleep if they say no? Um, what are we going to do if we say no? I felt very vulnerable. That's probably the truth of it. I felt very vulnerable. My fate, basically in the hands of the person who was opening that door. And I didn't like that feeling. I did not like the feeling of being scrutinized every time the door opened. I didn't like having our motives being questioned when we explained what we needed. I didn't like giving them that power over me because I considered myself a modern 21st century woman with a credit card. And if I need it, I can pay for it. But that really wasn't going to help me in these situations. And you can imagine, of course, you know, how relieved and how grateful I felt, Alberto felt when they opened that door and they said yes, which most of the time they did. They did open the door. And once they got over their initial shock of seeing how we looked, and you see in the pictures how we look, you know, with our huge backpacks and the walking sticks, we were grateful for that. But when they turned us away, and that did happen, I was so angry. I was livid, in fact, judging them, feeling that they were just betraying the very calling that had led them to do what they were doing. I was very much sitting in condemnation of them and what they were doing to us, I felt. But what I wasn't ready to admit, and let alone accept, is that they are human beings. Like me, my fellow brothers and sisters, on this path of awakening that we all share. And that, like me, they also have their fears and their limitations and their, uh, their beliefs as well. And that really, it was I who needed to let go of all of her expectations and her demands that people be a certain way to fit my needs and my way of thinking. I especially needed to let go of the very high expectations that I placed upon myself, the very rigid ideas of perfection that I had in my mind, and to stop beating myself up when I didn't live up to them. I also didn't want to admit that I had a lot of pride, that I didn't like asking for help, 
because I saw asking as a sign of weakness. I didn't know how to receive graciously and how to allow others that joy of giving from the heart. I didn't know how to receive from the heart because I still had very closed ideas about what receiving really meant. And so many more things, so many more things. But that's really what this pilgrimage was showing me and showing Alberto too. Just how much of my own thinking and my way of being was grounded in fear and why I needed to be able to lay it down so that love could enter and take its place so that I could finally have that peace and that lightness of being that I so yearned for. And so while on the one hand, you know, I, I was seeing, I was seeing all of the fears that I had. I was seeing all of my beliefs playing out right in front of me. Um, at the same time, I was feeling the presence of what I will only describe as a big love. You know, you can call that God, you can call that spirit, universe, creator. The label to me isn't important. It's that love. It was an unconditional big love. And that love was, it was with me. It was guiding me through this entire process of inner awakening and transformation that was taking place, despite me, me despite my resistance. Um, it was showing me, it was showing me patiently the way. It was bringing me to the people who can help and letting me know in infinite ways, big and small, that I wasn't walking alone, that we weren't walking alone. And to trust it, to trust it, not me, it. And that was really the surrender that was taking place. Um, I was being, you know, it felt like I was being, I was being nudged. I was being cajoled. I was being coaxed. I was being encouraged, pushed to finally um, fall, just fall into the arms of that love and to let it love lead me back to source because that's where the answers are that's where the peace is that's really the center that's the real jerusalem that i was walking towards here within love and that love of course that peace wasn't in jerusalem alone you know that jerusalem is with me it's inside it's a state of being and so when I left Jerusalem, of course, all of that came with me back to this life that I lead being Muni in the world. But the practice remains the same. It's the same practice that I had when we were walking to stay, to surrender all of the fears, to surrender all of the feelings of the emotions, the guilt, the everything that's going on, surrender the thoughts, give them to the one who knows how to take care of them and be receive in, in their place that peace, that light, that love, and stay there. Hold on to that. Be in that, because that is our natural state of being. And let that, from here, from this place of being, from this thing, let that inform any decisions that I take or any actions that I need to do in this world. So that's what my pilgrimage, that's what our pilgrimage was, was teaching me on the inner path. And of course, the parallels to the labyrinth are, are obvious. <laughs> um, you know, when you're entering the labyrinth and you're having to surrender, 
you're having to let go of everything. You're having to have patience with the process when you think you're almost there and then you're going farther away and then you're coming back. And the next thing you know, you're in the middle. But the center is really, the heart is where you're headed. This is your true destination, whether it's pilgrimage or whether it's on the labyrinth. And once you're in that place and you stay in that place and you let that nourish you and feed you and fill you, that is then what you're bringing back outside into the world. And that that becomes what your offering is to the world. And so I'll, I'll stop here. I will, I will leave it here because I would love to have um, a conversation with you around, you know, your thoughts about all of this and, and uh, any questions that, um, that you may have. I have so many stories that I can tell. Um, each picture is a story, as you can imagine, from what you're seeing here. Um, but um, I'm happy to answer any questions that, uh, that you may have. Thank you so much for listening.